Alan, look at us with a bonus episode. I love a bonus, don't you? Ah, a Brucey bonus. Like with benefits. Yeah. And it's um, very nice of the people at Mercedes-Benz are, 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 are sponsoring us for this thing. Why do you think that is, Chris? Well, for a start, Alan, they know we love a swish car. Um, <laughs> I love to be swaddled in luxury as I'm taken between office to office for, uh, you know, my various engagements while in lockdown. Yes. You know, what I think is really great nowadays is that so many of the big car manufacturers are starting to listen to people who want to be more environmentally friendly and sustainable. And so what's great about this new um, Mercedes car is that it's an electric hybrid. It's still got petrol and everything, but you can actually plug it in and drive it completely on electricity for up to 44 miles at a time. Yes. Now, I'm just looking at the bump here. And while it goes 44 miles on electric, then it switches to petrol, which means you can go as far as you like, listeners. We've been devouring the bump they sent us, haven't we, Alan? And (laughs) Did you realise I was reading that? No, not at all. Um, And can you tell I'm reading this? The new Mercedes-Benz A-Class plug-in hybrid's battery can be fully charged in as little as two hours at home. You have to have a specific wall box installed through mercedes-benz's charging partner bp charge master in order to get that two-hour charging hit fair enough yeah i'd do that it's like it's like buying it getting a free box for your telly a free what do you call it a free view free view yeah and alan like every a-class the plug-in hybrid comes with the latest mercedes-benz technology so this thing isn't a backwards machine it's the future it's not crunchy Um, but I just think it's a really great uh, way we're moving as a culture that, you know, it's, and it's actually interesting that what we're about to hear from Isaiah and he talks about it, that, um, that we, people listen when, when they realize that people want to buy these things, the market changes. And I guess mm. that's unfortunately the way we've got to, you know, we've got to um, talk to people in the language they understand. And in this way, uh, Mercedes-Benz has listened and they've made this new um, hybrid electric car. They have, and you're brilliant because we're, you're very good and ahead of the curve with sustainability. I think Alan educated me on how to uh, recycle batteries, for example. Well, you see, I'm from Scotland and we're way ahead of the curve on that. Absolutely. and you're... I told you about that time I went to the recycling centre and cried. You did. and Tragic. But no, it's very important. And you're vegan and, as um, well. I'm vegan, which does a huge, which makes a huge difference to the, you know, on, on various levels. If we ate less meat, everything would be better. If we ate no meat at all, a lot of cows would be happier for one. Well, I've massively cut down on the amount of meat and all things that I eat. My husband is now vegan and we... I just eat meat occasionally, but I could do better, Alan. And that's kind of brings me to why we're speaking to our guest, actually, because Queer Brown Vegan is an Instagram account run by Isaias Hernandez. And he is an environmental educator. And he, his Instagram, look him up. He's at Queer Brown Vegan. So good. It's so good. And it's just so simple, brilliant information about how to be environmentally better, more sustainability. We both are fans of him. So we wanted, we've been wanting to talk to him for ages. Yes. And also it's like got a lot of these, you know, like right now, especially in terms of like, you know, also in the Black Lives Matter and the sort of post- uh, George Floyd world we live in. Everyone's a little uh, scared. There's lots of new phrases being banded around. So, and environmentalism is a little like that too. There's all these different um, uh, phrases and things going on. And that's what Queer Brown Vegan Isaiah does really well. Mm. He kind of makes everything clear, t- tells you, have you ever wondered what this means? And he tells you what it means. And, it, and it's actually a really great resource yeah. for anyone who just wants to feel more... Um, on the nose yeah and his story is great and i think the intersection of queerness and sustainability is one i've been fascinated in for a long time should we have a listen let's hear them 
Isaiah, it's so lovely to meet you. I'm so glad to, to be talking to you today. Thank you so much again for having me. Are you glad, Chris? I'm over the moon, as you know, Alan, because we we're we're super fans, Isaiah. Like um, super fan, we stalk you on Instagram. We found and, uh, your profile, didn't we? And I think I just loved the title, queer brown vegan. I thought it was um, I don't know, neat. And I love the way you present your ideas, like it's really colourful and beautifully. Me too. I think it's a really good thing you're doing that you're you're talking about a very serious, urgent subject but making it kind of um fascinating and interesting and alive for people and not too scary because that's one of the things we wanted yeah. to actually talk about like how do you do what you're doing which is well what do you what what would you say you do tell us what do you how you define yourself i would describe myself as a queer environmental educator that provides accessible environmental educational content for anyone interested in learning about environmentalism Isaiah, you live zero waste. What does that what does that mean? Zero waste, you know, for a lot of people has a broad term of like the way to define it, but zero waste and low waste to me, it looks into how you're able to creatively redesign the way that you view plastic. And so understanding it from an individual impact, but also a global impact. So understanding that reducing your waste in different ways, but also acknowledging the fact that the plastic crisis is a global environmental justice that is disproportionately harming um, Black, Indigenous, people of color communities globally. And now we have countries that um, that are heavily exploited by colonialism are dealing with the amounts of waste that is usually delivered from countries like the UK and United States with waste. Where do you not, Where do you Where are you talking to us from today, Isaiah? Los Angeles. Oh, I thought you were in. I thought you were in Queens, New York. Is that where you used to I know. To I recently moved um, back oh. home due to Corona, but I'll be back in New York in 2021. <laughs> okay. So you're, so you're a, a, an L.A. boy. And tell us your story because your upbringing really affected how you uh, have come to this place as the queer brown vegan, doesn't it? You know, growing up, you know, my parents had immigrated um, in the 1980s um, to L.A. from Mexico. And so we grew up low income living in uh, what you would say affordable housing programs or, you know, programs that are sponsored by the government. And so... Many of these housings in Los Angeles are known to live in communities that are, are already low income, but um, that are nearby toxic facilities or um, places that generate noise pollution in some sense. And so uh, my aspects of environmentalism grew at a young age because of like based off survival. So it wasn't necessarily because I thought about being eco-friendly. It was about, oh, this is what we have. So I have to reuse it and use what I have to. And as I got older, I started learning about environmentalism and so that started making these connections within myself of saying like why is the air quality in my neighborhood this way um why what is climate change and like how does that interconnect to me and so as I got older I started realizing my own identity right being queer and then I realized the people who usually talk to me or that represented in the environmental spheres uh were usually straight uh white men and so I asked myself like oh is this this is interesting because I don't see anyone who looks like me or comes from my community. And so as I went to university, I realized the fact that um, many of the classes were dominated by, of course, white students. And not to say that it was bad, but it was to say that there was a lack of diversity and representation within those movements. And, you know, having the lack of support, having to deal with certain spaces in the environmental field, um, dealing with homophobia and like certain remarks being told to me, I realized then that that wasn't necessarily the space I needed to be in. And so leaving after college, that's what's something I want to cultivate it because had I known that there was a queer educator growing up or had I had a mentor like that, 
it would have changed my outlook in environmentalism. But instead, I had to go through all those hurdles and challenges to unlearn a lot of the things that I was taught um, to really get to where I'm at today. So you felt that you were being given environmentalism from a very straight white man angle. And you were like, there's a whole other spectrum out here that is yeah it's interesting that is great as well isn't it like do how poverty and like like i remember like growing up like i went to a very smart school where everyone had loads of money and so if you brought in your lunch in a plastic pot for example it was kind of considered like you were poor so there's Mm -hmm. so much attachment to what did they do? What did the posh ones do? They went to the school lunches or what, you, why you know, like, yeah, it was sort of you would just buy something or, you know, you would just go uh, out and buy something. Whereas like I see. And so there's a lot of like use that is about image, you know, like if I can afford to buy this thing that I can throw away, it it's sort of a lot. You know, people, I know. you see people striving for that almost, you know, it's funny. Do you, do you think that is? Yeah, I think the idea of consumerism is so ingrained in all of us, you know, whether it would be in our television shows, our media, our magazines, anything we read, it's all about stems from consumerism. At a young age, even to, I remember kids like shaming me for having thrifted clothes or even just the fact of like reusing a resource yeah. that is mm-hmm. now seen today as like environmentally friendly now, which is great to see that shift. But back then, I think it's because we ingrained in our own children and our own parents that consumerism is a good thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, especially in the USA, that's like the kind of the currency. Celebrity and consumerism are like the two holy grails. Um, I wanted to ask you about... Oh, what was I going to say? I actually got waylaid thinking about Dolly Parton's coat of many colours <laughs> when you were talking about <laughs> lifting and how her mum made her that coat and they all laughed at her when she went to school, but she loved it. Oh, bless uh, Do- her. Yeah, you know that song, Dolly Parton? She's great. She's I'm sure she's a big environmentalist. Oh, she's somewhere. everything, isn't um, she, Dolly Parton? She's great. She's just, Dolly is, you know, have you ever been to Dollywood? Oh, um, no. <laughs> no, I really want to go. Alan, can we do a trip? I'd love to. Oh, God, let's try and interview Dolly and go to Dollywood. I, I went there on uh, the the New Year's Eve of the millennium, oh. into the millennium. That's yeah. right. Wow. I did. I did. Can you imagine <gasps> with this boyfriend that was disastrous and uh, was obsessed with Dolly Parton? I can imagine it was a low-key affair at Dollywood. <laughs> it wasn't like, <laughs> it wasn't the rip-roaring, uh, you know, into the millennium party I was expecting. Oh, but, no, it wasn't. Uh, I, no, it was no, it was just a kind of a nice night, you know, blah blah. But then be like, we didn't actually. I took in the millennium. Uh, well, I think I was just with him actually in that room. But we're, I remember we were sitting outside our hotel, our awful hotel. So we'd just been to Dollywood. We're sitting outside in the car, listening to the audio tape of Dolly reading Dolly's autobiography, and I was like, "Oh my, what's my life like? This is me going into a new century." And um, and I was like going, hoping that Dolly would finish, but so we could, I wouldn't actually be taking in the new the new century in a car listening to Dolly Parton. <laughs> I know what I wanted to ask you was um, when you were growing up and you were noticing seeing the world in a different way. Like, what did your family think of you being like that? Were they supportive? Were they those kind of people as well? Within my own views of like what was happening in our environment, um, they agreed and they always knew at a young age, and that's why I never understood like things that my parents were aware of like they never let me buy plastic toys even though even though I asked from like the 99 cent store like 
they said no because they're like it has lead and I was like what do you mean like they're just toys and they knew and so you know at a younger age you just are angry you're just like no they don't they just don't want to give me anything in this life and so now that I look back it was like really interesting to see that that they knew about the pollution but they accepted it and as immigrants themselves like to be able to even speak up or talk about injustices in their community is very daunting and scary especially because the fact that um, many income commu- low-income communities that have uh, black and brown uh, immigrants um, are afraid to speak up because of ICE and um, deportation. And so yeah. we've seen it happen in different communities and different environments with other issues. And so <clears throat> that's something that, like, you know, the youth, myself, was, like, wanting to take responsibility for that. But also understanding, too, like, they didn't accept me in the beginning of who I was as a queer person and so it was really hard navigating that they because didn't. of the fact that that no they didn't growing up I had to really understand what that meant for me and how I was going to navigate it and so in the future you know now we have a better relationship and everything and so um you know it was really hard because I felt alone and kind of uh, devastated but having my siblings there to support me during that time was also a really great uh mentorship for me too hmm that's tough though. That's good. But just to say, where did your parents, you know, awareness of pollution and stuff come from? They grew up in Mexico. So my mom actually, she had just finished university um, to be a teacher. And so a month later after she graduated, she moved to the United States. And so it was so devastating to for her to understand everything about education since she helped um, tutor kids that were in lower income parts of Mexico. Mm. And so for her, you know, realizing the fact that there was already a lot of development happening in Mexico City during that time in the 90s and 80s, since now it's become more popularized. Um, she saw the fact, the effects of gentrification. She saw the effects of what was happening with these communities being pushed out. She saw the fact that when you're pushed out of these communities, you're nearby a lot of uh, toxic facilities or environments that are being devastated already by um, development. And so she was aware of these things. And so when she moved over to the United States, she understood that life would, was somewhat better from what she had. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that um, she instilled a lot of the educational foundation I have today um, through her own teaching experience. And my dad uh, was a farmer and like a cop during that time. And so when he moved over to the United States, he became a gardener. And so um, he instilled a lot of values of how to treat plants and like how to view plants in a different from an ecological standpoint. And so it helped me build that uh, foundation of understanding mm. the backgrounds of environment, I think, for me. Mm. That's so interesting. I found that actually during COVID being up, I'm in the Catskills uh, Mountains up in upstate New York right now. And like being amongst nature, literally in a, in, in a forest uh, for such a sustained period of time, longer than I've ever been since I was a child, actually. Um, it's been really amazing just how you kind of get a, bit, a little more in tune with things and about mm-hmm. and about about the light and about, but, but definitely about you see, oh, there are more bees now than there were a month ago. And all oh, these flowers are coming out and all that. All that stuff's really fascinating to me. And I, I think I have been more conscious um, of like, you know, up here we have a, our, we have a well and our um, a septic system and all that stuff. So we're kind of, you know, which is, you know, a little more, so you have to be more conscious about things anyway mm-hmm. in, in terms of chemicals you use. But I'm, I'm more, I, I don't know, I've become more sort of, I think I have become more conscious of that. I guess because actually as well, like I'm cooking all the time. I'm you know, doing all the things at home that I normally wouldn't do as much. And so I'm seeing 
the amount of things I'm putting in the recycling and the amount of, you know, and the amount of packaging you open when you go to the supermarket and all that but stuff. But you're among and it also, as well, isn't it? You know, it's like, it's that's how you're supposed to absorb it. Whereas we just in cities, mm -hmm. you just get moved away yes. from it and you don't know, yes. like, you, I couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you what time of year you're supposed to eat uh, a, a, a cauliflower. Like, <laughs> you know. No, that's right. <laughs> that's what um is that's what what do you call that is that what is being a macrobiotic is that you eat the food that's available at the time of year because i remember gwyneth paltrow she, told, she used to be a macrobiotic and she t tried to tell me about it once <laughs> yeah. that was the basic the basic thing as, as i as i it was a thing i did with her once uh and i for, on a tv thing and i took her to like um Cantor's deli or somewhere in la and you know and she was talking about being macrobiotic and then she was like getting chowed into french fries and stuff like that um <laughs> It, it it's almost like the 80s and 90s when you're talking about your mum growing up, like how that was a time when waste was shipped from rich countries to poor countries or people mm -hmm. from on lower incomes were not deemed important enough to care if it, people didn't care if there was a rubbish dump next to them. Or Does, Has that mm -hmm. changed? Has that changed? Or Well, that hasn't changed, but the repercussions of it has changed that it's not just the lower income people having to deal with climate change and all, all, all of that waste. Mm. It, it's inescapable. Los Angeles now one of the richest parts of the world is currently on fire. Right. You know, so it, yeah. it the repercussions are coming in, in, in these later yeah, years that it can't be shipped away anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting with California just, what a disaster mm. one natural disaster after i used to think when you know when i first went to la and was kind of having some trouble with the whole sort of working in hollywood issue i was just when it was going to be mudslides and floods and fires i think this is god's way of saying hollywood shouldn't exist <laughs> we shouldn't <laughs> we shouldn't be making these trashy films but um i think it's beyond that like, it's so sad to see the fact that you know um you know growing up i think when i started noticing la change was like in the late 2000s like early 2000s i think it was like the the youtube hype of like all the youtubers were moving to la and so you started seeing more development projects from a lot of cities and then um more natural wildfires were getting worse i remember the one in 2008 was like nearby my apartment it was like a few miles down actually i actually saw the flames and i was like do we actually have to evacuate like i've never seen a fire this close in my entire life and then um it went from there to happening every year now seeing the fact of like all these natural disasters and flooding and droughts oh my god that have happened um it raises a lot of question of like is california actually prepared for a lot of these disasters and people are saying no like they aren't prepared mm. well, no one. why not I think it's the fact that, you know, they have discarded a lot of ecological practices that have been um, for fire, like for fire ecology, like a lot of indigenous communities have been advocating for certain fire practices that allow the fire and the bushes to regenerate in a healthy way. So it prevents, it reduces the amount of wildfires. And so now California or Los Angeles has realized the importance of that. And so now they're investing in opportunities to look into that, but it took over like 30, 40 years to recognize that this was going to become a large issue. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's like, I, I read that thing that you were talking about just then, which is that, is it the indigenous people had said for years, you've got to listen to the land and you've got to do like um, mm -hmm. systematic burning so that, that when 
that prevents mm. the fires. And now, 40 years yeah. later, they're now deciding to do it. And it's like, you've got to listen, because unless you listen to the land, like you were saying, Alan, about yeah. being up in the Catskills, yeah. it's yeah. going to come, the answer will come through eventually in just a more torrid way. Yeah, and so that's one of the things that has been happening prevalently a lot in the United States is, um, you know, main focus is on. And so the reason why, you know, climate change and LGBTQ plus rights are interconnected it's because of the fact that when we look into these communities um, that are mainly BIPOC communities, a lot of um, homeless youth are around 40%, I think, in the United States are LGBTQ. And a lot of these youth are living in these areas. And so while they're not also while they're also having to fight against a system that's oppressive towards their identities and trying to survive, they also have to deal with the facts of living in these neighborhoods that are near toxic facilities. And so with the lack of already medical access or medical health access for these communities that are LGBTQ, a lot of them don't really have that many options to leave, especially since they have fled their homes and don't know where to go next. Mm. Can I ask you to just define what BIPOC is? BIPOC is kind of a, an add-on in a sense of it contributes to the differentiation of people of color and BIPOC is Black Indigenous people of color since um, black and indigenous people of color's um, values and their histories are different. And so distinguishing the fact that when we talk about POC, it's different from BIPOC. One of the things that, you know, people talk a lot about is environmentalism and veganism. Vegan power. Yeah. <laughs> I remember being in a class and someone was like, you can't call yourself an environmentalist if you still eat meat. And I was like, why? And during that time, I still ate meat. And I was like, why? And then they were like, because it's not ethical and unhealthy. And it was made out of industrialized like chemicals and all these other things. And then um, I soon then made the change because I got sick with meat. Every time I ate meat, I got sick. And so then I made a food diary and then made that decision to go vegan. And I don't regret it since I went vegetarian mm -hmm. first and then started transitioning to veganism. But I think it was it was really good for me. But the one thing I understood is that um, when I'm mm. talking to people about veganism in the space, in general spaces, like most men would say that it's like a gay thing or, um, you know, we characterize me as a masculine thing. And so it's very interesting to see that and why plants are seen as like feminine or oh, veganism. Yeah. Um, so deconstructing in that. I never thought of that. Isn't that weird? But do you remember there was that big documentary about food and it was asking and it was talking to guys about how they were worried that they wouldn't get an erection if they didn't eat meat <laughs> and then they did this test and showed men that they got a better <laughs> erection if they did, didn't eat meat and all this I was going to say nope no problems on that front with this <laughs> that vegan. wasn't an earthquake Alan <laughs> but, but I, I it's so funny because I I understand I'm actually realizing that because the, the biggest sort of straw that broke the camel's back changed me like you I was a, ve a vegetarian for ages and then I moved over was that uh, I, I read that Mike Tyson was the new face of veganism magazine he's been a vegan for a very long time so my my association with veganism is a is a very masculine <laughs> kind of oh, funny, uh, you yes, know yeah. aggressive sort of energy that uh, I don't think of it as uh, I mean I understand all that other stuff but I just realized that now that's why I don't ever have any kind of um, yeah Femi association with with uh, being a vegan. Yeah, it's considered wet for some there's reason, which also, is so boring. It's also a terrible. This is when I was in the L word. You know that show about lesbians. Yes. Well, I played this person, and um, this is really dirty. 
can I say it? Yes, I can do whatever I like. Um, <laughs> and uh, there was a scene where I was like, I came and started helping Pam Greer to run the club. And anyway, I had to have the, I had to do the sex scene with a with a with a boy, with a waiter. And I actually to make it so there's my friend Paul who lives in, in Vancouver. I got him. He's an actor. I got him to play the waiter. And we had to do we had to do this sexy. And I basically Pam Greer comes into her office and I'm fucking this boy on our desk. Oh. And I just and she just goes, for goodness sakes, that's ridiculous. And I just sit down and carry on chatting, still naked. because uh, I was like a crazy person, a crazy, you know. Um anyway, yeah. the point is that uh what was funny is that we did uh, me and Paul, it was obviously hilariously embarrassing, we were both naked. And we whenever we got to get you know, assume the position of me fucking him, we always we said hot dog in the bun, hot dog in the bun. That's what we kept saying to each other. <laughs> but the thing was, he's a vegan, has been forever, and um there was this there was a thing in the script about that vegan <laughs> ejaculate. I'll say that word in its truth, you know, yeah. vegan cum tastes better, right? Oh. Taste, that was the, that's the thing. Vegan. <laughs> so we were chatting and I made up this gag where I uh, said in one of the scenes of the Pam, I said to, to Paul, I went, hey, Paul, I can't remember his character's name, but hey, Paul, I went, are you vegan? <laughs> he goes, yeah, how did you know? And I just went, mm, just guessed. <laughs> Meaning, you see, you see. Always better like that, isn't Always it? better. <laughs> oh, um, yes. And so it's, it's, do you know what's really interesting? Yeah, though? move on from that one. Move on no, from that uh, one. Listen, Vegan come. Where are you going to pick this up the floor, off the floor? Alan, that's the kind of content we come here for. On <laughs> we come here, whoops. Um, do you, what's interesting is that talking to you, you're so calm and considered and yet you are an activist, you know? And what is that partly a decision to try and be like the calm voice of education or are there things that really make you angry that you feel that you've been talking about for so long and you're still not getting anywhere? <laughs> or like Christopher, are you imbibing in, 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 in CBD oil? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it comes now. from my, my own personality <laughs> growing up. Like I've always been very down to earth in a sense, like peaceful. Like I, you know, even in like high school or like college, I was like never really what you would say, like, I was respectful because that's who I was and I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so, you know, part of like what I started doing was seeing was it was shown as activism. And so I realized then that people were drawn to me because the fact of like the way I spoke about issues or the way like, you know, they asked so many questions and I was never um, to get annoyed. But I think that, you know, this is so spectrum of like people's emotions. And so I think myself anyways, like I know I haven't had it as worse than most other communities out there in the United States. And so I understand for activists out there that don't have the time to explain that are maybe mm -hmm. limited in their funding and access to opportunities out there. I think that's what stems from maybe the creation of that. And so for me as like a bridge builder or those who kind of give the space for others, I really want to showcase that for people who are just learning about environmentalism to understand where people come from. And so I call myself as like the level one teacher where you just enter environmentalism and you just want to learn. And then after I'm like, okay, well, good luck on your journey. Like do what you have to do to learn, but it's up to you and not to me and understand that they won't probably meet someone like mm. me or maybe similar out there, but that's just because of who I am. <laughs> and also I was going to say, I think because there's so much shouting in, in the USA right now. It's just people, and in Britain, it's just people shouting at each other. It's just mm. very, it's so much shouting. And I think nobody listens when you shout. Mm. It's so funny. I just was, I saw 
a thing on YouTube the other day about this f- film I'd done. I thought, oh, I remember that director. He just shouted all the time and nobody listened to him. Like basically, yeah. first of all, he was like, you're like, well, what's going on? Then like, I would go away for a few weeks and I'd come back on the set and I'd p- he'd be shouting and nobody would be paying any attention. I realized, yes. oh, he's lost his currency. He's devalued his currency because he just keeps at this level all the time and it doesn't make sense. And nobody's going to listen. Yeah. And I think that's what, what, what is really important about activism or, or advocacy is that you have to listen to people. You have to understand where they're coming from rather than just... Because that's, you know, I think in terms of the environmental thing, so many people, you know, are overwhelmed with it and like mm. overwhelmed. What can we do? What does it matter? The world's, you know, all these things. And what I think has been great about COVID, another thing, I keep saying this when we do these podcasts, <laughs> I've always got something great about COVID I bring up, <laughs> is that we saw so clearly the air got so much better. Yeah. That you know, when when the world kind of shut down for a bit, we saw the effects of pollution and and how we can turn that back. And like you know, dolphins in the in the canals of Venice was the highlight for me. Um, it was actually fake. They someone was shut saying, up. Yes, it was actually not real. Oh, for yeah. fuck's sake! Yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck off! That's just dreadful. So there weren't really dolphins in the canals no, of Venice. No, it was actually Alan had dolphins else. put in his pool as a result of that. Well, that they'll be taken out. <laughs> oh my god they're back to there's two things that spring to mind it's like one like alan was saying the the skies were clear and that was amazing but also suddenly we've got all this reusable plastic which has re-entered our life with masks and mm. cups and stuff and mm-hmm. is is covid helping environmentalism or is it not uh one thing is like yes the benefits in the sense of like covid um lowering emission standards we saw a lot of differences in there um from an environmental standpoint like it's i guess you would say like it's a good view however yeah. i think there was a lot of people who fantasized the idea of how it should be kept that way and like we yeah. people kept saying like we need more um outbreaks or new, new pandemics to um clear off people <laughs> but that then implies eco-fascism which like it's saying like you know usually mm-hmm. people who get covid are low-income people um people of color and so we're saying like oh well they should be the ones dying off and so that's like obviously deadly but the t- second thing is like the plastic pollution from single PPE masks, right? Um, a lot of environmentalists and zero wasters have talked about this. Like, I advocate that you should responsibly take care of where your mask goes from at the in life, but also ensure that you know if you need it for medical reasons, you should always wear it. You shouldn't have to um, compromise your own values or other people's lives just because oh, it's plastic, I can't use it. And so, people have been investing in reusable masks now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. I wash my masks. And um, wear them again. I still can't believe there weren't really dolphins in the canals. <laughs> well, on that bombshell. Who would do that? What an asshole. Who would do that? It was a very good uh, fake, wasn't it? Photoshop. Yeah. Isaiah, yeah. this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Wasn't he darling? I thought such a darling. What did you learn? What did you learn today though, Alan? What an informative episode. I think I, well, it was confirmed for me the kind of connection between poverty Mm. and uh, the people who, and environmentalism and the people who suffer most. And, you know, like with COVID, like with the environment, like with all things that are basically affecting negative things that are affecting us as a society the people at the bottom are the ones who are uh, being affected adversely most and that is uh, poor people and of course poor people are mostly or in a bigger ratio BIPOC people people of color and of course also included in that are queer people so it's like mm. it was a, it was kind of um a re- reaffirmation of how 
shit it all is. <laughs> I le- well, I learned that uh, I learned that you know it is about every little bit helps, and he reminded totally. me of that. And I wasn't sure if he would say that, so I thought that was interesting. I also mm. learned that Alan Cumming takes icons, including Gwyneth Paltrow and you know Suzanne Summers. She she was she invented the thigh master. That's her big thing. She was the thigh master lady. Oh yeah, that was it. Suzanne Summers. Alan Cumming only takes icons for chips because you had yes. French fries with Gwyneth Paltrow and you had French fries with Suzanne Summers. But even better with Suzanne Summers was that I didn't know this, but she'd done an advert. Another thing she promoted was for this kind of oil that made chips really. Uh, crispy oh yes. right i made them really it, it was kind of an oil that made them really crispy at less i don't know what it was but um and so when she when we ordered the french fries she said to the waiter and make them really crispy and i was like well she's been a bit stroppy with the waiter <laughs> but it was actually it was kind of her catchphrase from an advert i'd never she seen she was just on the cell we all learned something today and i did i thought it was really sweet the way he was drinking from a jam jar you know and he was talking so much about reusing totally. things as different yes. things i thought that was drinking from the jam jar i've just realized cute. it might have been suzanne summers it might have been a deep fat fryer she had not an oil was it a dry anyway, fryer something, like a dry fr- maybe it was a dry fryer it was yes. something to do like anyway it just made chips crisp that's the point do you know what we do here we say listeners you've got to write in and tell us because they always have the answer and you know what we say? You've got to let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Because Alan was drinking at the time and, um, you know, it might have been that you just can't remember. <laughs> so, Alan, all I have left to say to you is I suggest you already love a plug-in hybrid car, but I suggest you go and have a Google of Mercedes-Benz A-Class plug-in hybrid. And quite frankly, they should deliver one to your door because if they want a brand ambassador, look at me oh, just sacrificing myself here. Thanks so much. There'd be a lot of Instagram. There'd be a lot of Instagram love for, for them if that was the case. I tell you. And maybe they should send me. And also, I would you. drive forty four miles every day on electricity and feel I wasn't harming the planet. Wouldn't that be great? I wonder how. It'd be interesting to go in different directions for four. Of course, you'd have to go to a plug at the end of the 44 miles. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yes, but also important to clarify, Alan, that it can go 44 miles on electric, but then it does switch to petrol, so you can actually go as far as you like, listeners. This has been a wonderful episode. Thank you so much for listening. We love you, and we will see you next week. Take care. Brush your hair. Bye. Bye. Powered by Spirit Studios.